Well, it is so good to see all of you. I tell you what, uh, Sunday mornings, just the opportunity and the privilege of just being able to see you, it just, it's just a thrill. I just so enjoy the opportunity of doing that. And for all of you who are watching online, I want you to know that we miss not seeing you. Uh, we want you to know that you are well-loved, and I cannot wait for the next opportunity for us to be able to engage. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Matthew. So if you would find Matthew chapter 5. I want you to know that missing some messages can have massive consequences in your life. And that was certainly the case on April 14, 1912. There's a guy by the name of Jack Phillips. He is a British naval officer. He was the senior uh, wireless operator on the ship, the RMS Titanic, which was making its maiden voyage to New York. And uh, Jack Phillips was in a situation where he was in a position to be able to receive a message that would have not only saved his life, but the lives of hundreds of others. Now, Phillips had been exceptionally busy as the wireless operator. Uh, There were all these wealthy passengers. They wanted to get their messages out. And so he had a backlog of messages, and he was trying to clear them. He received a particular message, though, from the steamship Mesaba, which warned that there was ice in the area. And actually, Jack Phillips not only received the message, but what he did with the message was most troubling. He actually never sent it up to the bridge, the the platform, the room, where those who were actually guiding and navigating the ship would be. He just kept it. In fact, that wasn't the only message that was critical There was another message that came that was very similar, this time from a guy by the name of Cyril Evans. He was on the SS Californian. They were sailing 20 miles away from where the Titanic was, and he sent this warning that there was ice in the area. But by this time, though, Jack was just so frustrated. He was just kind of worn out, and he developed kind of a bad attitude. And when he received this particular message from the SS Californian, he responded this way, quote, keep out, shut up. I'm working Cape Race, poker business, good. Ten minutes later, the Titanic hit an iceberg, and you know what happened. I mean, it led to tragedy. 1,523 people, including Phillips, lost their life. And it was unnecessary. They had the message. Phillips had it. He actually knew what he should have done with it, but he was arrogant. He could care less, more interested in the poker games that were going on. He was completely distracted. And he failed in his responsibility to receive the message and to pass it on, and it led to tragic consequences. I want you to know, when you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, this is the message you cannot afford to miss. It's the life-saving message. You could refer to it as the key to the kingdom. If you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, you want to understand Jesus' life, why he came, how he lived, why he died, and why he is resurrected, 
you must understand Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And it's surprising that many people are quite unfamiliar with this passage. It should be highlighted, spoken of regularly, because this is the key to the kingdom. And if you don't have it, you most likely do not really have relationship with Christ. It really it answers this question. How is it possible that disciples of Jesus are the salt of the earth and the light of the world when we all are so very sinful. And remember what we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, Matthew five thirteen. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And then he went on to say in verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. How is that possible though? Because we are so sinful. How is it that we truly can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? The key to the kingdom, I can give it to you in one word. It's Christ. That's how this is possible. You see, the key to the kingdom is, first of all, it's trusting that Christ fulfills all righteousness for his disciples. Let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What Jesus is saying, he says, I am the ultimate fulfillment of all that the law has spoke of. The law, speaking of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets. He says, I am literally the fulfillment. I didn't come to abolish, which has the idea to destroy or to dismiss. I didn't come to overthrow. Rather, I came to fulfill. I came to bring the law to its full intended goal. You see... What we need is the actually actual fulfillment that only God can provide. And his life is the lived in complete obedience to God, fulfills all the law's righteous demands. So when, when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill, what does that completely mean? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus kept the moral law, how to love God and to love others all of its ethical demands. Jesus fulfilled these things completely. Jesus also fulfilled the ceremonial law. All of the sacrifices, the symbols, the types, the ceremonies, the sacrificial system, all of these pointed to him. So when he says, I came to fulfill them, he's literally saying, I am the one that all these things point to. I am the fulfillment. I bring them to completion. He is also the one who fulfills the judicial law. That speaks of God's perfect justice. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The law is given to us by God, and it points the way in saying, this is how to live. The law could never bring salvation. What the law does is it shows us our need for a savior. So God gives a law, like for instance, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing with that? Anybody saying like, I think I've got that down. Never, never missed it? Of course. <laughs> Loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, strength? I don't think anybody here qualifies for that. Anybody like to love your neighbor really well as yourself? I don't think so. 
And so even though that's how we are designed to live, the law shows us that indeed we are incapable. We need a savior. And God's law is, requires a just requirement for its violation. The wages of sin to miss the mark is what? Death. And that's why Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, enters into humanity. He lives a perfect life. He fulfills all the law's righteous demands. And that's why he is the perfect sacrifice who can go to a cross, pay the penalty for sin, and by rising again, by virtue of that resurrection, can give eternal life, his righteousness, to any who believes. That is inherent and the essence of the gospel. That's what makes you right with God. It's not you doing the right things, saying the right things, your church attendance, or your good behavior and performance. Actually, it is Christ and Christ alone and his finished work on the cross, his righteousness that makes you right with God when you believe in him. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to dismiss it. I came to fulfill it. And furthermore, when he speaks of fulfilling the law and the prophets, he is the prophetic fulfillment. By one count, there's 333 prophecies made about the coming Messiah, what he is to do, what he's to be like, all that he's to accomplish. When Jesus comes his first time, the eternal son of God comes his first time, he fulfills over a hundred of those. And he has promised to return. Many of the the, uh, prophecies yet to be uh, fulfilled speak of an earthly kingdom reign. And if you want to read about it, you want to see the return of Christ, his promised return, just go to the book of Revelation, where he will then fulfill all the remaining prophecies. He is the prophetic fulfillment. And one other thing, when we say, when Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, and the prophets, he is the fulfillment of wisdom. What is wisdom? It is the skill for living life as it's intended in relationship with God, and Jesus does that perfectly. So Jesus brings his righteousness. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all the law that God has given And he shows us what right living really is. And so he's saying, listen, I didn't come to dismiss the law. I didn't come to do something completely new where we're going to just like forget about the law given in the Old Testament or forgetting about the prophets, uh, prophecies given. I am the embodiment. I am the incarnation. I am the fulfillment of them. Jesus fulfills the word doctrinally, ethically, prophetically, and personally. And then furthermore, look at this, verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus literally says, Amen. That's been translated probably in your Bible like mine, truly. Usually like when we say a prayer. At the end, we oftentimes say amen or amen, right? And it's like, this is true. But Jesus is showing that he is the absolute authority. He is the authority and the author of the word. And he begins by making this statement. This is true. And he makes this statement that shows the absolute inerrancy and authority of the word.
So when we speak of like inerrancy, it means that which is absolutely true. It is without error. When he, when Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And he wants you to and I to know just how critically important every aspect of his word is. This is an amazing, powerful statement. He says, he says, verse uh, 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter. That would be the Hebrew letter yod. It would be like the equivalent of like an apostrophe or like an accent mark. It's, it's super small or stroke. And the stroke would be like a serif. It's just a little mark. And we, we still have them today. I mean, it is slight. And it does change, like the pronunciation, it changes the word by actually having that serif. He says, these things are so critical. Heaven and earth will not pass away until all is fulfilled. What did Jesus believe about the word? He believed it was inerrant absolutely truthful. He believed it was infallible, completely trustworthy, and it was completely authoritative on matters of life, truth, morals, ethics. He says, this word is critically important. And says, not even the smallest stroke is insignificant. Friends, this is the mindset and the attitude that disciples of Jesus have with the word. We recognize that, that it is given to us by God. Second Timothy 3.16 says what? All scripture is inspired by God, literally from the breath of God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's what you will find. You will find that Christians hold to the inerrancy of the word. They believe it's absolutely truthful and that every single word, even its mark, is critically important. I'm sure you've heard of the movie Rain Man, 1988. There was a film about this savant who had outstanding uh, mathematical skills and abilities. But you may not know that it was actually based upon a real-life individual Rain Man is actually based upon the, a man by the name of Kim Peek. Peek was what doctors would call a mega savant. Now, a savant is someone that has exceptional knowledge of a particular area, and in the category would be for like one to three areas. But Kim Peek, while he was alive, was believed to have had the most exceptional brain that had ever existed. He was referred to as a mega savant because he had exceptional mastery over 15 different areas of study, including history, sports, space, music, and geography. He read over a total of 9,000 books, and he had perfect recall of them. So like all of a sudden you're like, okay, I give up, you know? I can't even remember what I read in the newspaper yesterday. He had a mastery level knowledge and a complete memory of over 9,000 books. And like, get this. It was discovered that each one of Kim Peek's eyes could read a page simultaneously. Okay? Try that. Just, just try it. I have. <laughs> it didn't work. Okay? But you try it and tell me if it works for you. Okay? And not only this, 
But you know how long it took him to read a page? You and I, on average, takes an average like about three minutes to read a page. Each one of his eyes could read a page. It would take only 10 seconds, and he had complete mastery and a complete total recall of what he read. His father, Fran, uh, traveled with Kim uh, for his entire life while Kim was alive. Um, There were many things that Kim couldn't do, lots of motor skills. He had all sorts of social awkwardness, um, and yet he was something to behold. And while he was alive, he actually would make appearances, and they would basically, kind of like a show. Um, People would get in line to test him and come up with, like, the most difficult questions in all these different areas. And he, he had total recall. He could tell you all sorts of statistics, things that you and I, like, we would never even think of. He actually had memorized. One time, Kim Peek went to a Shakespeare performance of The Twelfth Night. And he sat through the entire thing, and except things got really awkward at the very end. Right before the actor was finishing up some of his final lines, all of a sudden, Kim Peek stood up and he yelled out, Stop! 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 You've got to stop it! The actor was, uh, had just finished, but he, the second to the last verse of the play, he decided just to omit. So now everybody's looking and, and the actor is, of course, totally thrown off. And so the actor said this, you know, uh, the verses are just so much alike. I I don't think it would matter, so I didn't say it. And Kim Peek, in front of everybody, I mean, the play is over, he makes this statement, it mattered to William Shakespeare, it should matter to you. And I can assure you, that actor never forgot that lesson. But I wonder if the Christians have. You see, how much more Should we hold and value and treasure the word of God? Paul understood this. He understood the importance of the word and how it pointed to Christ. In fact, he writes about it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Just listen to these words. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else It really pales in comparison. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And then listen to what he says in verse 9. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Christ fulfills all righteousness for his people. That's why Jesus Christ is of surpassing value. Christ is the key to the kingdom. You see, the key to the kingdom is this. It's verses 18 and 19. Christ fulfills all righteousness for his disciples. But I want you to know there's a second part to this this key to the kingdom. It's verses 19 through 20. And that is, Christ manifests his righteousness through his disciples. So you and I, we possess Christ's righteousness. We have positional truth. 
It is true of us that we are absolutely right with God, not by virtue of anything that we've done, but by virtue of the fact that Christ's righteousness has been received by us by virtue of faith. But at the same time, God intends for us to practice righteous living, that we have a practical righteousness that comes when we are living by faith. And that's what he talks about here in verses 19 through 20. He talks about what kingdom citizens are known for. Look at this, verse 19. He says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he says, Whoever annuls, which has the idea of kind of loosening the force, um, making it not as binding. He says, whoever takes any aspect of my word and makes it less than it should be, doesn't adhere to it like it's called for. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say they're out of the kingdom. What does he say? They are least in the kingdom. Here's a verse that if you want to understand eternal security that you cannot truly lose your salvation if your faith is in Christ and Christ alone. He says, even those who don't follow or kind of loosen the authority or the effect of the word, they are still in the kingdom. They're least in the kingdom, but they still are. Why is that? Because the only way you're in the kingdom is if God put you there. You have faith in him. It's not anything you've done. It's everything that he has done. But we're not, we don't want to aspire to be like least in the kingdom. He is telling us that he wants to accomplish and show his righteousness through our lives. And he describes what that looks like. He says, uh, on the other hand, what we want to be are those who are keeping and teaching them. Whoever keeps them has the idea that you live them out, you hold them, you do them, and you teach them, meaning you pass them on to others. This is what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. You value God's word. It's inspired. It's infallible. You hold it like Jesus did. Every even single mark is important. We want to get it right. We treasure them, but we also pass them on to others. We teach them. That's what it looks like to be in the kingdom. So we practice and preach it. We live it and we pass it on. We're very much taking the pattern of like Ezra the scribe. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. This is such a good verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it. What's that? You're keeping it. And to teach his statues and ordinances in Israel. You keep it, you live it, you teach it. That is the pattern. And when we do that, you see, Christ is showing his righteousness. We are actually living right, doing as God said, fulfilling, although albeit really imperfectly, what God is calling for in his word. And we do it not in our strength, but in the spiritual strength of the Holy Spirit that God gives to his people. That, by the way, is what should look like in our families, that we actually talk about the truths of Scripture. We have an interface and that we're seeking to live them out. And if you want to understand Fellowship Bible Church, that's why the word 
plays such a paramount importance in all of our ministries, whether it be with our littlest of our children all the way through our senior adults, why do we give such attention to understanding and growing deep in this word and seeking to live it out? Because that's what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, if you want to understand like our preaching ministry, why we really just basically take books of the Bible, passages of scripture, we break them down and we seek to understand them and to live them out, live this truth out according to the power of his spirit. It's because fundamentally we believe that the word is the message. I don't want you to get the idea that like I just come up with messages and here's some fun things that I want to pass on to you so you can have a better life. Actually, the message is the word. My job is merely to present it to you, to help you understand it, and to encourage you to live it out in the strength of Christ. That's what we do. That is greatness in the kingdom. And that's why when Paul says in his final letter, in the final chapter, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, well, they'll not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That is exactly what's happening right now in modern-day Christianity. We just want some feel-good messages. We like to have pop psychology so we can have a better life. And God says, my people will be known because they adhere to my word. They keep it and they live it. And there's one other trait that comes that you find with kingdom citizens. They keep God's commandments. They actually teach God's commandments and they internalize them. Look at verse 20. Jesus says this, And when he did, this was perhaps the most startling statement he made in his entire sermon. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All of a sudden, everybody just like hit the brakes. You what? You can see the Pharisees, the scribes, they did. They were like the masters of the word. They did everything they could to follow them externally. In fact, they came up with all of their these oral traditions, all of these extra laws to help them keep the laws. And it was it was crazy. It was way beyond anything that was even reasonable. Even they couldn't follow them. But that didn't so matter because they were just super judgmental. Everybody else that was falling even far shorter than they were. And Jesus says, you know what? Time out. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If anybody thought they were in the kingdom, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus said, I got news for you. You are not in. You see, they had missed the understanding that relationship with God is not just following rules and rituals. It's a heartfelt, loving, truth-based relationship with the living God. It comes by virtue of faith. And they, they just didn't understand that. They didn't come with the right heart. They didn't engage their mind at the right level. And they had the wrong motives for why they were doing things. They were trying to earn salvation with God, earn the fact that they were quote-unquote righteous and could be judgmental toward others. 
And Jesus said, really? You've missed it. It's a matter of the heart. I desire that you and I have a loving relationship. In fact, that's how the rest of chapter 5 is. He's going to give them six different illustrations of how they had heard, and then he gives them like some aspect of the law, and then he says, but you have missed it. But I say to you, let me give you the true intent. What's intended by real relationship with me? And so he's going to cover subjects that they had quite a bit of discussion about at that time, and it actually exists even today. Subjects like murder and anger, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love. And it all follows this formula. You have heard it said, of course they knew that, but I say to you, let me help you understand what it means to internalize, to know the true intent, what it looks like to be in relationship with me. That's what he's presenting. Now, he gave six He could have given more, but he's doing this to show you what authentic, genuine relationship with God really looks like. He could have given a seventh. He could have given like on tithing, for instance. You have heard it said, you should give X percentage of your finances. But in actuality, what he would be calling for is that you want to live graciously and give generously and graciously. And we would learn these principles by learning what, how he actually shows us to live relationship with God from the heart, not just following rules and rituals. You see, it's the heart intention. That's what's behind the instruction. You see, the key to the kingdom of God is this. It's relationship with Christ and trusting in his righteousness. That is the key to the kingdom. Robert Roberts wrote this. There's something comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. Whether your list comes from mindless fundamentalism or mindless liberalism, you always know where you stand, and this helps reduce anxiety. Do's and don'tisms has the advantage that you don't need wisdom. You don't have to think subtly or make hard choices. You don't have to relate to relate personally to a demanding and loving Lord. You see, righteousness is all about relationship with God. It's not just following rules and regulations and going through rituals. And I want you to know that you got a lot of folks that would consider themselves Christians, but it's all external performance. You show up at church X number of times. You got a Bible. You have a certain code of behavior that you're trying to follow. Those things can all be nice, but they can also be dangerous because if you're trusting in that, and not Jesus and his righteousness, and having this heart relationship where you're living out truth? Friends, you don't know the living God. You've missed the key to the kingdom. You have not really received the message of eternal life. Perhaps you've heard of the guy who, on his wedding day, he told his wife, listen, I love you, and if that ever changes, I'll tell you. In fact, he never told his wife again, that he loved her. And he kind of just functioned like he thought a husband should, you know, and showed up with some money, paid some bills, mowed the yard, trimmed a bush or two, grilled burgers on occasion, sat around in his chair a lot, you know, I mean, things that husbands are supposed to do, right? Meanwhile, his wife is just wilting away. You see, you know why that relationship isn't working? It's missing the key 
essential factor, and that is love. (laughs) It's love. It's a love relationship. That's how marriages thrive, and friends, that's how your relationship with God thrives. It's love. You see, the key to the kingdom is Christ, knowing him, trusting in his righteousness, and seeing him being lived out through you. Have you noticed how important it is to have the right key? Like, for instance, to have the right key is pretty important, like if you're going to drive home today, right? After service, if you don't have the right key, guess what? You're not going anywhere. Not only do you have to have it, you have to know how to use it. Or have you noticed, like, to get into your home, the door's locked, you've got to have the right key, you have to know how to use it. Tomorrow, when you show up at the office, you've got to have the right key to get into the building. Otherwise, you're on the outside. And friends, that's true of the kingdom as well. You have to have the key to the kingdom. And the key to the kingdom is relationship with Christ and trusting in his righteousness. And friends, I want you to know for me, this passage is so deeply personal because apart from understanding the truth of this passage, I would just be stuck on some sort of like, I just got to do this. I got to follow this pattern. I'm trying to keep God happy. I'm trying to earn salvation. I'm trying to earn and develop righteousness on my own. And this passage tells us, uh -uh. Jesus came to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. He is the absolute fulfillment of the scriptures. But at the same time, he intends to bring transformation where we're living out the truth of the word and the strength of his spirit and we're doing so to the glory of God. Friends, if you do not have the key to the kingdom, what you will do is you will reduce Christianity to a simple code of moral behavior and certain ethics, some things that you do and don't. You will have a perfunctory relationship with God, devoid of true salvation and true righteousness. Friends, do not be like Jack Phillips the senior wireless operator on the Titanic. He had the message. He just didn't heed it. He didn't apply it. And he didn't pass it on to others. And it had massive, tragic consequences. The key to the kingdom is relationship with Christ and trusting in his righteousness. Let's pray.